Okay, we are going to the Gospel of Mark, the 12th chapter. We are going to be using a reasonable amount of Scripture, as is our practice, because it's His Word that matters. Um, so I would encourage you to have your Bibles. If you don't, um, they, the Scriptures will be on the screen, and I'm more than happy to give them <clears throat> to you afterwards. Amen. But we will be reading a bit of the Word and, and hopefully get you out of here before it's dark. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28, says, And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst or dared ask him any question. Amen. This passage is significant. It's significant, it's worthy of our consideration. Because if we want to please God, if it is our desire to please God, and if there is a commandment that is first, or that comes before all other commandments, then we should probably pay attention to that. Amen? If there's a first commandment. And when Jesus was asked the question, he didn't think about it for a while. He didn't Google an answer. But without hesitation, he reached back to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 and 5, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now, as some of you know, more than others perhaps, this passage in Deuteronomy is included in what the, the Hebrews of the Old Testament called the Shema. And the Shema is a collection of scriptures that were the central focus, you might say. They were the, they were the, the identity statement of their faith in God in the nation of Israel. And the declaration that the Lord our God is one Lord was never meant to be a passive statement just to be observed, but rather it was a statement that was given to propel us into the second statement that commands us to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's important we understand today that there are some things that are different between God's relationship with His people in the Old Testament to what there are with God's relationship to His church in the New Testament. But this statement about, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, is central to the Word of God. From Genesis chapter 1, 
all the way through to Revelation chapter 22. If it was the first commandment in the Old Testament and Jesus without hesitation reinstated it as the first commandment in the New Testament, then it applies across the board. Amen. I hope that's fairly easy for us to grasp. But Jesus went a step further in his answer and he added the commandment that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the scribe who had asked the original question not only agreed with Jesus, but he said that the keeping of these two commandments is more than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices, which is a direct reference to the worship and the approach of God in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and, and the temple. And what he was saying was our obedience to these two commandments overshadows or encapsulates, we might say, any act of worship and sacrifice and obedient to a particular commandment that was elsewhere. In this same conversation that is recorded here in, in Mark 12, in the same conversation that is recorded in Matthew's gospel, as part of Jesus' response, Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets, which is the Old Testament, all of the law and the prophets hang upon these two commandments. That's the word that was used. It's, 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 in other words, everything that God requires of his people in both Testaments is taken care of by how we love him and how we love others. Amen. When you, when, if you are a student of the word of God, if you are a student of the Old Testament and you, you look at all of the things that God required of his people, they can be distilled down to two categories. They're either a part of our relationship with him or they're a part of our relationship with others. Whichever commandment that we consider. Amen. And that makes it simple in one sense, but it also makes it an incredible challenge. And it's interesting to me that Jesus said that it was on these two commandments that the Old Testament hung. Because it's the very same word that is translated as hang that is used when the scripture describes of how Jesus hung upon the cross. Colossians 2 and 14, it says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. The handwriting of ordinances is King James English speaking about the law and the prophets which revealed what sin was, revealed the consequences of sin, and let us know that we were in sin. However, because he hung upon the cross, those commandments and the consequences of those things were nailed to his cross. And now you and I have the opportunity to keep all of those commandments by keeping the first and second commandment that he gave us in Mark chapter 12. Amen. And so this morning I'm beginning a series that is simply titled, One God, Two Commandments. One God, Two Commandments. We're going to take some time with this. I may leave it and come back to it throughout the year. We may still be doing it come Christmas time. We'll see. But uh, it's just going to be one of those series. My daughter asked me if it was going to be like the book of Proverbs, but it's not. Some of you were around when we taught that series. Amen. So the first commandment, the first commandment, when the, when the scribe said to Jesus, what is the first commandment? What did the Lord say? He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul with all their mind and with all their strength. I think I've got that order right. We need to notice in Jesus' answer <clears throat> that there are two elements to his response. 
There's two elements, two, two pieces to that answer. The first is the emphatic statement that the Lord our God is one Lord. That is a part of the first commandment. And the second is that we are to love that Lord, who is one Lord, with every part of who we are. And sometimes when you read those scriptures together, we can sort of fail to recognize the fullness of the message that is in that commandment. Because it is important, the identity of the Lord matters before we think about how we love Him. That's why He didn't just say, you shall love the Lord with your heart, soul, mind and strength. But the first part of the commandment was, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. You see, in the ancient world of the Old Testament, Israel was an anomaly. They were weird. They were different to all the other nations around about them. The other nations and people groups worshipped multiple deities. The theological word is they were polytheistic. Poly meaning many and theos being Greek for God. They had many gods. They were polytheistic. And the gods that many of those nations worshipped were almost always visible in some way. Whether they were idols that were made out of wood, out of stone, out of some other substance that men would fashion and then bow down and worship, or whether they were the elements of nature. Sometimes they worshipped the sun. Abraham's family were moon worshippers. The Egyptians worshipped the river Nile. There were all these different elements that, that, that people chose to be, to be gods and usually they didn't just have one. Because each god in this polytheistic idea often had a limited responsibility. It was like a government department. No, that's not my job. They had all these different responsibilities. There, there was a God for the harvest. There was a God for the battle. There was a God for this situation and a God for that. In fact, you see that in the Old Testament when Israel's in a war with their enemies at one point. They, they think, well, their God must be God of the mountains, so we'll fight them in the valley. And, and that didn't work. And so they thought, well, obviously we got that wrong and we'll switch it around. And they came to understand that Israel's God kind of was a God of everywhere. He wasn't of the mountain or the valley. But you see, Israel in their uniqueness in the Old Testament world, had one God for everything. Not only that, their God was invisible. Their God couldn't be seen. But what also was unique was that their one God showed up in every situation. He was there in the battle. He was there in the harvest. He was their provider. He was their defender. He might have been invisible, but he could part seas and he could make the sun stand still. Amen. He could bring water out of a rock and he could provide manna from heaven and feed millions of people miraculously. So while he may have been invisible, he was definitely very, very powerful. And when it came to how he was to be worshipped, to how his people were to live, there were expectations. That's when we, we read from the New Testament where they spoke about the law and the prophets. That was basically all of the expectations the things that the Lord expected of his people. And all of those expectations began with who he was. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. Amen. He was not a council of gods like the ancient Greeks had, where they had superior gods and junior gods and demigods and Percy Jackson and everybody else was in the mix. He was not part of a council of gods. The Greeks had that, the Romans had that, and others had that. He, he was not interested in being part of a council. 
his oneness also meant that all worship belonged to him. He didn't share with him. He wasn't interested in being one of Israel's options, but he insisted on being Israel's everything. This is what some Old Testament scripture says. Isaiah 44 and 24, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and he that stretched the, and sorry, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. There's an emphasis on alone and by myself. In Exodus 34 and 14, the Lord said, For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, jealousy, jealousy is not a trait or a characteristic that we think highly of amongst people. We, we teach our children not to be jealous. At least we should try. Because jealousy makes everything about us. We, we want to have more. We want to be better. We want to be liked. We, it, it becomes about me having more than other people, than, than being treated better than other people. But when you are the only true God, for him to be jealous is not a character flaw, but rather it is a statement that there is no name like his name and that there is no God like our God. Because he made everything, including us, he will not share his worship with another. Amen. Now, in, in the modern world, we think, well, that's, that's, um, that's a little arrogant, perhaps. But we're not talking about people. We're talking about God. We're talking about God. This, this God, this creator, he knew that although he gave commandments to his people, the law and the prophets, and that he would demonstrate his power to them again and again and again, they would also fail him and fall into sin again and again and again. And so this all-powerful God is also a God of love. And so as part of his plans, he made his people a promise. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. And too often this is a verse that manages to show up at Christmas time and then go into the fridge for the rest of the year. But Isaiah 7 and 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. Even with their limited understanding of science in that day, they knew that this was not possible in the natural world. But God. Amen. Then a couple of chapters later in chapter 9 and verse 6, the same prophet, writing under the inspiration of the same spirit, said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So, not only is there going to be a son that is going to be born outside of what we would consider naturally and normally possible, being born of a virgin, but this son that is born miraculously is also going to have all of these titles and be all of these things. Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And it is contradictory. It is a contradictory statement to natural thought and understanding that the Son 
or someone who was born, somebody who had a beginning point, could also be the everlasting father, but God. Amen. You see, Isaiah wrote these words, as best estimate, somewhere around about 740, 750 years before the birth of Jesus. And then when we get to that time, in Luke chapter 1, I told you there was going to be a little bit of scripture, but I'm hopefully building something that will help us understand. Luke chapter 1, some 700 plus years after Isaiah wrote those words, in verse 26 it says, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, oh there's that the qualification from Isaiah chapter 7, espoused or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, in other words, a descendant of King David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, or we would say, how you going? Thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, She was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. She was a little troubled. There's an angel talking to her and he greeted her rather strangely. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, first problem, and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. Now, There's an understatement, if ever they said one. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And then Mary said unto the angel, very reasonable question, how is this possible, seeing I don't know a man? I've never had relationships with a man. And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Again, that's a passage that shows up a lot at Christmas time. But let's, as best I can, let's connect this conversation between Mary and and the angel Gabriel with the prophecy that Isaiah wrote. We have a virgin who is going to conceive. That defies all the natural laws. It's going to be a boy. It's going to be a son. That lines up. The Holy Ghost, also referred to as the power of the highest or the Spirit of God, is going to cause the conception. And he's going to be the Son of God and his name is going to be called Jesus. Now, we know Jesus was born around about 30 years later. He begins his ministry. There's a whole lot of history we could go through there. But he begins his ministry. And as Jesus ministers to people, not only did he regularly do the miraculous, regularly, and he spoke to them of a connection that he had with God that they struggled to really understand. When he spoke of his father, all they saw was a man a genuine human in Jesus Christ. And he, but he acknowledged the one that gave him life in that body. But then he would speak to creation 
and it would obey his voice. Not everybody can speak to a storm and have creation obey their voice. And then he would begin from what they perceived to be the limits of humanity to speak about things that were outside of the limits of humanity. A few quick examples. When he said, before Abraham was, I am. They were like, you're not even 50. Abraham's been dead for a whole bunch of years. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that invisible God from the Old Testament. He said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. That happened a while back too, as best we can work here. Then he said, if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And to a person that he was ministering to, he said, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And they said, who can forgive sins but God? That's the question. Jesus, in his ministry, was getting out of human territory sometimes and getting into God territory. You know, he, he was starting to, to cross what were natural boundaries. And the Jews wanted to stone him to death because they said that he was a man who was making himself God. They understood the language. They understood the language. So how was this possible? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. How are we doing for time? Oh, we've got ages. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. For in him, when you read the context, the him is Jesus. There's no doubt about that. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily or in a body. So in that human body that Mary was involved in producing, dwelt, resided, the fullness or the complete essence of God or that same spirit that was also involved in the production of that child. The power of the higher shall overshadow thee. Amen. That's why, as Isaiah wrote, he was the child that was born, he was the son that was given, but he was also the mighty God and the everlasting Father. Amen. To believe this, to understand this at least as much as we can, because trying to comprehend the fullness of God with my little brain, my brain taps out very early. But at least at a basic level, and by faith in what the Word of God says, to believe this is inseparable from keeping the first commandment. The Lord our God is one Lord. Amen. Amen. So, let's come back a little bit. The, the conversation between Jesus and the religious leader about the first and second commandments is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. It's not in John, but it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in... We read Mark 12, I think Matthew's 22, and I think Luke might be 17 if you are a note taker. And in Luke's account, when Luke reflects that conversation, the conversation flows into Jesus being asked, well, who's my neighbor? And then the Lord gives the story of the Good Samaritan. And we'll get to that in coming weeks in this series. But, but in, in, in Matthew and Mark, in both of their accounts, it leads into a different conversation. In Matthew chapter 22... In verse 41, everybody's still awake? There's a lot of fanning going on. 
Matthew chapter 22 and verse 41. So this is, this is immediately after, which is the first commandment, okay? This is the context. While the Pharisees were gathered together, so they're still there, they're still there, Jesus asked them, they had a question, now he gets a question, saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they said unto him, the son of David. And he saith unto them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither dared any man from that day forth to ask him any more questions. You know what they were scared? Because if we ask him a question, he's going to ask us a question. That's the problem. You see, these religious leaders had heard Jesus answer the question about the first commandment. But then he said to them, who will the Messiah be descended from? Who is the Messiah? And they knew. They were, they were Bible school students. They knew that the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. Okay? Easy question. Ha, that's a no-brainer. We've got that one covered. But then Jesus asks a supplementary question, a follow-up question. Quoting from the 110th Psalm, Jesus says, well, okay, if that's the case, if the Messiah is going to be the son of David... How is it back then that David, writing or speaking by the Spirit of the God, says in verse 44 of our text in Matthew 22, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, I don't want to get off track, but if you're reading the King James, the first Lord is all capitals, which is speaking about God, Creator, one true living God. And the second Lord is, is, is a reference to when Jesus would come in flesh. I don't want to get off track into that. Happy to discuss that later. But the question that Jesus is asking is, how can David call him Lord or honor him if he is his descendant? Because that would be backwards. That would be backwards. How is the Messiah over David as his Lord, but yet also his son? And the answer is because the son that was given, the child that Mary carried was the physical descendant of David. You can look at those genealogies if you want to in the Gospels. But the spirit that caused her conception, the spirit of God that overshadowed her and miraculously caused her to become pregnant was the same spirit that caused David to call him Lord hundreds of years earlier. Revelation puts this in one verse, which is, I think, powerfully clear. Revelation 22 and 16. I, Jesus, who? Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you of these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. He's saying, I, Jesus, am both everlasting father and the son. He is the root. In other words, he is the source of life. He is David's creator. He was there long before David was ever imagined. But he is also the offspring. He is a product of the life that God gave to David. So in his humanity, he's offspring. In his divinity, he's the root. 
He's the source of life. Amen. Does that make sense? Okay. This question, I'm not, hopefully I'm not going to be too much longer, but this is the subject. If you know me, I can go all day. This question mattered to Jesus, which is the first commandment. It mattered to him. He wasn't interested in asking riddles that they couldn't answer or just proving that he was smarter than they were. The identity of the Messiah mattered. Matthew chapter 16. Some of you already know where we're going. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now Jesus in verse 13 said he was the Son of Man. Peter said here he's the Son of the living God. They're both correct. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, just means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. You're not smart enough, Peter, to work this out by yourself. But my Father, which is in heaven, and I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So now Jesus is talking to his disciples, but the subject is the same. It's around the same subject. Who do men say that I am? Jesus wasn't having an identity crisis. He wasn't feeling insecure because he didn't get enough likes on social media. He's asking the question because it matters. It matters. Amen. Some say this prophet, that prophet, one of the prophets. But who do you guys say that I am? Why is that so important? Who is he leaving to build his church? When he's done, when his ministry is finished, who is he trusting with the gospel? These guys. Amen. And Peter says, thou art the Christ. Or you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. And you are the son of the living God. As we read from Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter was basically saying, you are the body in whom all the fullness of God dwells. That's who you are. That's who you are. And Peter, Jesus said that revelation was given to you by God. That's divine. That's not made up in a man's mind. But God has given you a direct revelation. And it is upon this rock, this revelation that I will build my church. The Orthodox Church has said that Peter is the rock the church was built on. That is a mistake. The rock that the church is built upon is the revelation that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. And Peter... As a part of that revelation, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's why every cartoon you see of the pearly gates has an old dude with a beard to his knees and a big set of keys. Such a misunderstanding. Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And in Acts chapter 2, when God put out his spirit for the first time, and the crowd said, 
How can we be saved? What do we need to do? Peter said, click, you need to repent. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus so your sins can be forgiven. And you need to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter was given the authority by God to open access for people to come into the kingdom of God. That's why in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 where it says, You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. When the church was opened in Jerusalem, Peter was there in Acts chapter 2. When it was opened in Samaria, when they were filled with the Holy Ghost, Peter and John were there. In Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius and his household were saved, Peter was there. Because the Lord gave Peter the keys to open the kingdom, Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus walked with his disciples for three to three and a half years. In that time, he could have given Peter the keys at any time in that journey, at any point. You know, Lazarus' tomb, this is pretty cool. See, I raised this guy from the dead. He'd been dead for four days. By the way, Pete, here's some keys. Didn't do it there. The Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was glorified in their sight. Didn't give him the keys there. Amen. Could have given them Peter when they walked on water together on the Sea of Galilee. Get back in the boat and say, man, that was awesome, Pete. I got something for you. None of those situations did Jesus give him the keys. But he chose to give Peter the keys upon his revelation that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Why is this important? Why is this important in connection to the first commandment for us as New Testament believers? It's important because when I, when you and I try to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, who He is changes everything. Who He is changes everything. He is the Creator. On one hand, the majesty of the Creator. But he is also a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is the one that Revelation describes as sitting upon heaven's throne, angels worshipping him. The, the visions of John in Revelation, people casting their crowns before him in acknowledgement of his majesty. But he's also the mercy seat that we come to when we need help in time of need. He fills the universe. You know, the psalmist spoke about how if I go to the uttermost ends of the earth, he's already there. He fills the universe with his majesty, but John 14 and John 16 tell us that he's the comforter. He's the one that comes alongside. As the psalmist said in Psalm 46, he is our very present help. Time of trouble. When I pray, when you pray, we understand that we are praying to the king of all kings. The one who was, who is, and is to come. And yet at the same time, he's compassionate, the Bible says, towards my weaknesses and my infirmities because he experienced our humanity. He is the holy God before whom no sin can approach and yet he is the mediator between God and man. It matters who he is. Amen. So before we begin to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength, we need to remember who it is that we're talking about when we say the Lord, our God, is one Lord. Stand with me if you would this morning. Why don't you lift your hands and worship Him. We worship you, Jesus. 
We worship you, Jesus. We understand, Lord. We thank you for the revelation that you gave Peter. We thank you that you're still giving that revelation today. That, Lord, you are not some part of a divine council of gods, but you are God manifest in the flesh. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Lord, you are the Son, the child, but you are also the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Lord, you are the one that spoke to Moses at the burning bush, and yet you were revealed in flesh. And you said before Abraham was, I am. I am. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you. I thank you, Lord. We know your majesty, but we also know your closeness and your compassion. We know that you are holy, that you are righteous, and yet you are merciful, and you are gracious. You're touched with the feelings of our infirmities, Lord, when we're weak, when we struggle. Lord God, you're not distant, you're not afar off, but you are the one that comes alongside. God, we worship you.